0: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 1st, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine.
1: The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, but now proudly including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement.
0: I'm Abby Dees. And
1: I'm Wenzel Jones.
0: Tonight, we share Jim Ferrat's story of Stonewall, 50 years after the fateful night.
1: We'll also revisit a story of coming out from Peter Dell.
0: And share a Gaytino report with American labor leader and LGBT ally Dolores Huerta.
1: But first, the honest tea. And what's up this week, Abby. Did you uh, watch the
0: coverage about the G20 summit?
1: You know, I did watch bits and pieces and I mostly what stuck in my head was how furious some of my family would be if Hillary Clinton had walked into North Korea. That's all, oh, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about I know. To shake
0: hands with yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. her bestie. Oh, they Kim would Jong-un. be apoplectic had she done such a thing Of this doesn't even get mentioned. No. But that's not what we're talking no,
0: about. No, that's not what we're talking about. So <laughs> Vladimir Putin, ahead of the G twenty,
1: mm-hmm.
0: in an interview with the Financial Times mm-hmm. said that Western liberalism was obsolete. It had, quote, come into conflict with the interests of the overwhelming majority of the population. Okay, evidence of this, Trump, nationalism, yeah, yeah, yeah. populism. Everywhere. Everywhere. To be re- Fascism on the march. To be very clear. Liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Means things like free and fair elections, civil Mm -hmm. rights, free speech, civil liberties. It's what the U.S. used to represent. It's not liberal as in we're sitting at KPFK, a liberal station. That's not what it means. And he also, in that interview, said that he had no problem with LGBT people. God forbid, let them live as they wish.
1: Which is a bit mealy mouth.
0: Oh, the mealy-mouth here yeah. is insane.
1: <laughs> There's some, a T-shirt. The oh, mealy-mouth is, is insane. insane.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Honesty T-shirts. You always have these ideas that I think about after we move on. But some things do appear excessive to us, Putin said. They claim now that children can play five or six gender roles, but traditional values are more stable than this liberal idea. So a little reminder because we've talked mm-hmm. about this a lot. Russia bans propaganda for quote non-traditional sexual relationships and that really means that they ban any public right. statement saying LGBT people are decent, no civil rights protections whatsoever. We've talked about Chechnya, right.
1: an ongoing horror. Yes,
0: the sort of Russian sphere of influence torturing right. LGBT people, rounding them up.
1: And yet you can't even say, oh, he's an outlier because he's not the only person talking this way at all. No. And that's the the depressing part.
0: And we talked about something really similar to this last week and Mm -hmm. the week before and the week before before that, which is this new spin is like, oh, no, no, we are really fine with LGBT people, but. But, And then therein lies everything you need to know. And I think that People are happy to just carve off the first part of that assertion and say, he doesn't have a problem with LGBT. And in our country, it's about the religious freedom stuff. And to be clear, I have no problem with religious freedom. It's in the First Amendment. I'm a fan. But But it's being used (laughs) as the exception that will swallow the rule
1: right well and it's like in chechnya as this goes on they're always saying oh no we don't have a problem with lgbt people but we don't have any
0: we don't have any. we don't have
1: any so they don't exist so so you're all making this up we, well in the meantime they're actually killing people. they're killing people, people. we don't
0: you don't want them anywhere near yeah. your children they yeah. have no civil rights protections yeah. we actually are quite willing to hang them out to dry and that's a good day yeah. and that's putin's position there's more to this, though, just sort of on a grand scale. There's
1: always more.
0: Because I read this as a victory mm-hmm. dance that Putin mm-hmm. was doing. He looked mm-hmm. so happy at the G20, so happy, mm-hmm. shaking hands with Trump, Trump giggling with him and saying, now, 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 Putin, don't you meddle in our election again. Wink, Him wink. and his
1: bromance is that darn Donnie.
0: I sort of see him as like peeing in the corners of Europe <laughs> to claim it, because Russia has been systematically trying oh. to undo liberal democracy. What an
1: excellent image that is!
0: Doesn't that sort of because it's like true? That?
1: That's how you claim your territory when you're a guy. You just piss on it.
0: Then Donald Tusk, he's got such an unfortunate initials, Donald Tusk, because I had to read that twice, who is the head of the European Council, Mm -hmm. said, What I find really obsolete is authoritarianism, personality cults, and the rule of oligarchs. Why isn't our president saying that?
1: Because he's a fan of them.
0: Therein lies the great question is, did he not understand what liberal democracy meant? And that's sort of the trope that people are running with. He said, if you look at San Francisco and L.A., they're sad because they're run by liberals. But then on the other hand, he is cozying up to Putin and Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping and... name. Give me another dictator.
1: All Gosh, of them. Don't make oh, me. Oh, oh, the one in, in Brazil.
0: Yes. Bolsonaro, yeah, yeah, yeah. who wasn't at the G20, I right. don't believe. Probably yeah, not. And MBS, the Crown oh, right, Prince, right, right. who our intelligence service is very clear the whole house directed the, the murder of jamal khashoggi trump was in his element so you kind of think maybe he's right
1: but the important thing is did a celebrity weigh in on this yeah oh which because one because
0: it's no human rights <laughs> issue internationally <laughs> yeah. without a celebrity weighing
1: in oh but it wasn't bono this time
0: and it wasn't george clooney
1: it wasn't George Clooney. although so... he
0: might have weighed in i didn't check
1: well it che- was elton john oh good
0: it was Elton John. So he wrote an open letter saying that Putin and Russia are hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Th- they are. Case in point. not saying he's wrong. He said Russian distributors of his film Rocket Man, which is the biopic about mm-hmm. his life, removed all references to, quote, my finding true happiness through my 25-year relationship with David, David Furnish, mm-hmm. and raising of my two beautiful sons. He was absolutely right. I have no yeah. beef with him about this, but there's always this slightly surreal twist – I am wondering if he had any conversations with the distributors before this happened, because that film is being viewed in Russia, apparently. It is, a
1: truncated version.
0: Did this catch him off guard? Does he have any ability to say, oh, hell no, give me my um, film back? More questions than answers, I think, in that one. So many. But he is right to call this one out. He is. Although we've
1: lived long enough. I remember when he was married to a woman for about two seconds. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah. I remember his friends going, oh, a terrible mistake has been made here. <laughs> I thought, well, you mean he's? Yeah. And Frank it was Mercury, a long time ago. He was married yeah.
0: to a woman. Okay, that's going to yeah. be another honest to you. Well, and plus, he
1: wasn't legally married to David Furnish till I very mean very recently. Yeah, because this hasn't been something we all grew up with, which no. is not the point of what he said. I know.
0: Anyway, back to Putin. Okay, Putin. <laughs> I'm afraid he's right. I don't mean that he is right, morally right. I'm afraid that liberal democracy is dying. That he's the
1: bellwether of the death of liberal democracy. Because he is
0: doing a happy dance slash peeing in the corners of Europe.
1: (laughs) There's our other T-shirt, peeing in the corners of Europe.
0: Again, Clarence Thomas. Oh,
1: bless him. He hardly ever speaks, and yet he irritates.
0: But he does write, and his opinions yeah. are bonkers. Yeah, and so this kind of happened as we came to the end of this session for the Supreme Court. This mm. case got lost in the shuffle because it was no big deal, frankly. The right, case right. was called Gamble v. U.S., mm-hmm. and it was all about double jeopardy. And the outcome of it was nothing changes. Yeah. It's, it's always been you can the be tried
1: twice, once by the federal, federal and government, state. Once by the, oh, yeah, that's
0: the way it's always been. So that's why it didn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. But he wrote a concurring opinion. In that case, now a concurring opinion means you agree with the outcome, but you have your own reasoning for it Mm -hmm. and you want to get that out. In that concurring opinion about double jeopardy,
1: the BTW,
0: the BTW, by the way, oh, the BTW, yeah, mm -hmm. yes,
1: oh, keep up, sorry, (laughs) that's what the kids are saying. We've established our oldness. (laughs) I think I did by saying BTW, (laughs) you did. Okay, Clarence Thomas.
0: Thomas went on a rant about how the courts treat stare decisis. Mm -hmm. Now you went and researched stare decisis.
1: I looked it up, stare decisis, there I said it. Okay. Oh, oh, that means a, a, a legal precedent. We stand by the decision.
0: Yes, so that is what the Supreme Court does that yes. is like number one in their job description is stare decisis mm-hmm. that they and yes there are many ways to pronounce that right. as you found out this is how i pronounce
1: unless it. it's a truly stupid decision like dred scott or something
0: right right but it is a big deal when right. the court goes against stare decisis mm-hmm. and changes something so bowers v hardwick was mm-hmm. the famous sodomy case right. in 86 and then later on Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion that actually reversed that. So we have a number of sort of horrible cases that needed to be turned around. Right. But it is a big deal. Thomas said the court shouldn't be constrained by precedent to fix rulings that are demonstrably incorrect. He was basically arguing that the court is mistaken, that it always is kind of held by this. Mm -hmm. And to provide an example of that, he brought up the 2015 decision of Obergefell v. Hodges, the case that gave a marriage equality to all yeah. or recognized marriage yes. equality for all. And it is this week, actually, the mm-hmm. third anniversary of that decision. He brought that as an example of the court way overreach, that it felt sort of hamstrung by stare decisis mm-hmm. and it didn't need to be. And this really sent up some. Flags for people watching the court because there are three cases coming up this mm-hmm. term after the summer break that have to deal with LGBTQ discrimination laws in right. the Civil Rights Act. The general thinking is that he's saying, hey, court, you can even go back on Obergefell v. Hodges. You don't have to pay attention to any of this. And he's sort of saying, go.
1: Do and the it. delicious irony is, what if he went back further and changed his mind about loving versus Virginia, because he is married to a white woman. This
0: is fascinating. Which
1: was illegal when he was a child. Not it wasn't illegal in all the country. I realize, but it was. He
0: has a very interesting reading of court's historical mm-hmm. history. In his dissent in Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, mm-hmm. he also said some bonkers things about loving. I love that you read these things. Oh, I care. <laughs> this, is, this is my idea of fun. So in his dissent in that case, he said same-sex marriage was not like loving at all because that was pretty much about people getting arrested for getting married, mm-hmm. you know, interracial couples. And that was the problem basically shacking up. But that's not what loving was about. Loving really was the case that said marriage is a fundamental right. Right. This is not ambiguous, but yeah. that's what he said in the dissent 40 years later. And then he talked about dignity. Now dignity harms are a huge part of civil rights jurisprudence mm-hmm. that has been on the radar if not explicitly said as dignity since mm-hmm. before Brown v. Board of Education. In that case, the court talked about a feeling of inferiority. Mm-hmm. This is what we call a dignity harm. But he said in Obergefell that no, 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 dignity was the wrong thing to look at because the government can't give you dignity and it can't take it away. He even said slaves didn't lose dignity under slavery. So what? you can't use the dignity harms argument. This is all I could manner- listen to
1: you legal wonk all day because okay. I, I never heard any of this. Slaves you don't you just, lose dignity?
0: I mean, you could maybe argue that point. But also just from a legal historical standpoint, mm-hmm. that makes no sense. No. Dignity harms are recognized. Now, it's true that Kennedy expanded that concept of dignity mm-hmm. harms and many of his opinions many years later. Mm. But the core thing that dignity harms are not subject to civil rights investigation from right, a legal right. standpoint, is just nuts. In that case, too, I'll also just say Scalia wrote that the majority opinion in Obergefell, Obergefell, Obergefell
1: I'm never sure of it, even after what, And I don't what, even think I'm it correctly <laughs> then, um,
0: was legalistic bargle. So talk about using legal terms. I, I just want to Argelbargle. say Argle Arglebargle. Back to Thomas
1: Taurus. Although, one thing about Scalia, as odious as he was, I loved his use of the term jiggery pokery. Arglebargle, mere...
0: jiggery pokery? Jiggery pokery.
1: I just, I don't know where those come from, but they just trip off the tongue once well, you practice. <laughs> we don't have him
0: anymore to <laughs> no, give us we these, don't. these fancy high flying terms like jiggery pokery. Yeah, no. well, I don't remember. I remember that, but I don't remember yeah. what case that was. It was yeah.
1: just nonsense.
0: It was. So So Thomas is not a lump. He is quiet in arguments, but neocons watch him like Mm -hmm. a hawk. And this is being interpreted as him saying Mm
1: -hmm.
0: around LGBTQ issues Mm -hmm. and abortion issues. Mm -hmm. He's kind of saying he's ready to... Turn around and go against precedent. Start decisis. That's frightening
1: and horrifyingly. Apparently, the youth of America are sort of falling in line behind him. Children
0: may not be our future, oh. and this is really also keeping I me know. up at night and making me think that Putin is correct. Glad Gay and Lesbian mm-hmm. Alliance Against Defamation. I don't know. I know why they haven't changed their name to include trans and bi people. It's because GLAAD is so wonderful. They haven't figured that out. I might be wrong, but I think that's what that is. It's like the NAACP.
1: It's like they should have changed it, but...
0: It works. They have been doing a -A 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 survey for the last five years called Accelerating Acceptance, which is actually run by the Harris Poll. This most recent version of that survey showed that young people, we mean 18 to 34, showed a notable drop in acceptance of LGBTQ people since just last year. This is really shocking because everybody has assumed that that was the most accepting group.
1: And yet I can sort of understand it because people who were 16 two years ago have been raised in a different world than the 16-year-olds from... Two years before that, if they have any mean-spirited sort of thoughts, there is now a room to celebrate that in.
0: I'm thinking about—I came of age during the Reagan days, and Mm. everything changed. My cohort was a bunch of—I'm sorry, greedy, Wall Street, movie— selfish people and right. the people five years before were kind of post hippies and yeah see
1: i came i came of age during the carter years and it was all very yeah. gentle and
0: i mean i kind of remembered carter i mm-hmm. thought that's where we were going and then we went full reagan i'm still oh, recovering from that
1: i don't think we'll ever recover from that
0: so 36 percent of people in this survey said that they were very or somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of learning that a family member would be lgbtq and that's a from twenty nine percent last year, mm-hmm. and that thirty nine percent would be uncomfortable having a child receiving a history lesson by an LGBTQ. Oh, a history a history lesson, lesson about specifically. LG, no. Oh,
1: oh, about LGBTQ yes. history. Oh, okay.
0: Yes, a LGBTQ mm-hmm. history lesson that is from thirty percent last year, thirty nine percent this year, thirty percent last year. That's a huge increase. That's not just normal statistical variation.
1: But I wonder if maybe it is truer to the way people actually think, because we discuss this around my house a lot. You'll read a poll and you think they're just saying what they want the pollster to hear. Yeah, They want to present themselves in such a fashion. But nowadays, it's okay to be xenophobic. It's okay to be you can racist. Say okay. it out Yeah, loud. you can say it out loud. And there's really no shame attached to it. I mean, there would be right here with us today but in a lot of parts of this country it's perfectly okay to say things like that now and nobody's gonna say boo because
0: otherwise you're just being the pc police
1: right right exactly yes
0: and as you know miss manners said famously years ago if pc means having good manners Mm -hmm. call me pc
1: yeah if it means thinking about other people's feelings
0: i get hope from one thing though
1: Oh, good. And this is... <laughs> I know every week we want to be hopeful, and we get sidetracked.
0: I get hopeful by the U.S. women's soccer team. Yay. Who are in the middle of the World Cup right now. I just want to say they have taken the title... Three times since Uh 1991. That is seven games. They are in their eighth World Cup right now. They are probably going to win. They just beat France in the quarterfinals. And
1: ever since we talked about Megan Rapinoe doing the Sports Illustrated. Rapinoe. Rapinoe, sorry. Mm -hmm. But ever since we talked about her, she's everywhere. She is everywhere. It's like when you buy a car and suddenly you realize that model is all over the road. How did I not know who she was before that? Well, because I'm. So ignorant. Yes, anyway, we were talking
0: about the swimsuit edition. Right, right, right So right. I was, I had mixed feelings about that. I take it all back. Any mixed feelings I had, yeah. I have no mixed feelings about her right now. This week, she is calling out Trump. She said. I'm not going to the effing White House mm-hmm. if they win, you know, because he likes to invite people and give them hamburgers. Right. And it's not the first time she said that in and May. And it's not about the hamburgers It's either. not about the hamburgers. She said, I'm not going to hobnob with the president who is clearly against so many of the things that mm-hmm. I am for and so many of the things that I actually am. I have no interest in extending our platform to him. She's described herself recently as a walking protest. Right. She didn't sing the national anthem in, in a 2015 tournament. She kneeled during the national anthem, and now the U.S. Soccer Federation requires standing. Oh, uh, and so one of the people writing about this said in response that the president pooped out. Mm-hmm. And I thought that is great. I'm going to keep that. forever. Oh, I know. Pooped out a bunch <laughs> of tweets saying Megan should never disrespect our country, you know, with all his weird capitalization. And then a bunch of random racist stuff about the NBA and that black people should be grateful that he helped them with criminal justice reform. Somehow sports and criminal justice in his mind just go right. together under the heading black. And then he tagged Megan Rapino but not the right one. and so There's the,
1: another one?
0: Yes. The not Megan Rapino, Megan Rapino, mm-hmm. Megan Rapino without the E at the end, called oh, him oh, out. Oh. And so Trump did it all again.
1: Oh, good Lord. Although the thing about this that, that thrilled me the most is this is what celebrity is for. Yes, it is. This is how you should use it. Because I remember being so irritated during the W years when Robert Redford, who's got enough awards,
0: going to the White House. Went,
1: went to the Kennedy Centers, showed up, glad-handing yeah. W in the White House. I thought, good God.
0: Yes. So she is Use- not yeah, getting into is- it with him. She's like, yeah. okay, you know, whatever. Yeah. She didn't respond. She didn't take the bait. She just keeps saying, yeah, no, not going to do it. And he says, well, we have to win first. Right. Well, they probably will, if you're going to bet. I and think. I
1: read recently that she's not going to go to the White House, but AOC has invited them to... For a tour of the House of Representatives. Yes, and, and she
0: said, I will go to absolutely. that. Absolutely. Thank you, yeah. Alexandria. Uh, so after beating France on mm-hmm. Saturday, she said, go gays. You can't win a championship without gays. It's never been done before ever. Science right there. To be gay and fabulous during Pride Month at the World Cup is nice. I think that's <laughs> understatement. So I take back everything I said it's the only sports that I watch. If you want to watch the semifinals, the American team's going up against England, a fantastic team. So mm-hmm. that should be a great game. That's Tuesday at 5 p.m. That's tomorrow on my TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know about your TV, but that's I, what mine said.
1: Sure, mine does get sports somewhere.
0: So if you're feeling like you need to take a break from the end of yeah. Western liberalism and Putin's happy dance and Trump taking selfies at the North Korea border— Ugh. Where he said, there's
1: a wall. <laughs>
0: Watch some lesbians and some allies running around, hitting a ball and kicking butt. And
1: so that's our ray of sunshine for of this sunshine. week. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, it has been 50 years since the desktop at Stonewall, and there are a thousand versions of what happened that night.
0: Our Steve Pride gets the real story from someone who was actually there.
1: Do you know Dorothy?
2: Do you have the time... Have you got a light, dear?
3: Change for a dime. Do
2: you come here often?
1: I see what you mean. I know a tavern where we won't be seen.
3: I'm Jim Forat, and I've been rabble-rousing since the early 60s as an artist, as a political organizer, and I'm one of the few people that's willing to say that I don't celebrate the Stonewall Inn at all. It is a symbol to me of our oppression. Before 1969, we were grateful to have these mafia-run places because they were the only places that were safe to meet. Otherwise, we were left to the bushes or chance encounters of that kind. But they were very much a symbol to me of how we were oppressed and organized crime being a partner in that. What happened that night happened in the street, which fundamentally changed the lives of game that's been people regardless of what they call themselves or cultures, but across the world people know about Stonewall, but it's in the streets. That spark that was a spark of rebellion, a spark of liberation, did not happen inside that bar. And people like David Carter, who wrote the book Stonewall Riots, celebrates it depoliticizes in a very interesting way the radical aspects of what happened in the street that night. So I've been to Stonewall maybe three times since then. If someone really is having an event that they really want me to be at and I love them very much, I will go for maybe five or ten minutes, but it's not something that I celebrate. It's owned by the same family that owned it in 1969. At the time, I was working at CVS, Columbia Records, I was an assistant to Clive Davis, and I did a lot of their marketing. You know, Clive has come out and everyone knows after being married and having two kids for X amount of years, his wife Dottie came out. I never knew that Clive was gay. And people always assumed that I got the job because I was this cute blonde Twinkie. But no, (laughs) I just want to put on the record, never knew that until one night I discovered him in the balcony of Studio 54 in a very compromising position which then told me that, in fact, he was a gay man. But he was very discreet about it when I worked at Columbia Records. So I was working there. It's a Friday night. I was working late. And I was coming home, and Christopher Street starts at Greenwich Avenue, and the subway station lets you out at Greenwich Avenue and 6th Avenue. So I was walking along Greenwich Avenue, and I turned the corner on Christopher Street, and I noticed a single cop's car parked in front of the Stonewall. And a couple, may I emphasize, a couple of people outside of the bar. It was 10.30 at night. So, like any good radical of the 60s, you see a cop's car in front of a place. 10.30 at night, a couple of people in front. I walked down, and as I got close to the door to the bar, it opened. Now, I knew this bar. It was not a bar that I went to. I went to other bars in the neighborhood, unlike the David Carter book, saying that there weren't, there were. There was a great dance bar, for example, it's called the Cherry Lane. And the door opened and out came what at the time was called a passing woman, meaning a female who was very masculine in her identity and dressed like a man and carried herself like a man. There were pejorative terms like bull dagger, bull dyke that would be used to describe her, but the sort of nicer word was passing woman, meaning that she passed as a man. And she was coming out and she was handcuffed and she was being big and burly. Everyone had a lot of gender expression that night, you know, and they put her in the police car in handcuffs and they went back inside. And I, I sort of stunned and I stood there and it was a Saturday night. I mean, people started coming, you know, down the street to see what was going on. She started, she's big enough to rock the police car, you know, inside. And lo and behold, the cop had not locked the door on the other side and it popped open, much to her surprise, by the way. And so she got out. She raised her arms, and she she was big and burly, but she had women's wrists, and she slipped out of those handcuffs because they were not done that tightly. And by now, there might have been 40 people, and a big cheer went up. And that, to me, is the moment that gay rebellion took place, that moment that was spontaneous, that no one would, I mean, no political person would have planned this event at that place, okay? And something happened, and it changed forever, I believe, how we see ourselves and how we had the courage to come out. Now, what's interesting is right next door was the Mattachine Society, literally in the building next door. And the Mattachine had become a very different kind of political organization than it was when Harry Hay and the seven members founded it in Los Angeles. Anyway, that moment happens, and the cop comes out again and looks at the crowd who are now in full yelling, you know, and cheering, and cheering her in particular, went back inside and closed the door. And from what I know from people that were inside, there were two cops. That was the moment when they called for reinforcements. Now, the David Carter book starts at midnight, and the two voices of authority in that book are the police officer who was overall in charge and a straight reporter named Howard Smith. Howard Smith was one of my best friends. I will say to you right here, I do not believe that Howard was inside the Stonewall, But Howard, being a certain kind of reporter, could confabulate in a very beautiful way a story. And so those are the two voices that David Carter uses to say what went on. The police officer has yet to ever admit that there was a payoff going on. He would not say that the cops took money. And this is well known. I mean, this was not an unusual event to happen at a gay bar, usually early in the evening, for the cops to come and get their weekly or monthly or whatever the time circuit was. I don't know what the problem was. I don't know what the problem was inside. But they didn't get their pay according to what they thought they should be getting, and there was a, they were leaning. And the patrons were used to this, and, and some of the more how shall we say, well, some of the, the queens, and there weren't a lot of queens let into the Stonewall. You have to understand, the Stonewall was set up for a very specific clientele. It was a place where closeted, sometimes married men would go to meet young men, usually hustlers, or chicken was the word that was used for very young men. They didn't let a whole lot of queens in. They didn't let a whole lot of people of color in. There was a very strong door person there, always was this huge Italian man who would let you in and not let you in. And they called for reinforcements. Three more police cars came. Now, you see a lot of pictures of paddy wagons with Queens getting into the paddy wagon. They are not from that night. There was very little documentation of what actually happened that night, so people scrambled and... Media scrambled to figure out. Remember, the Village Voice was on the corner, and this is never talked about. But I was very good friends with the Village Voice people because in the 60s I was a cultural person, so I knew Howard and I knew all the Village Voice people. They made up the story of Judy Garland because they couldn't figure out why these gay people were so upset in the street. Now I'm a Judy Garland fan. I'm old enough to have seen Judy Garland. I tell people I sang with Judy Garland and I did, but I was one of like the 1200 gay men that were in the Carnegie Hall when she recorded Judy at Carnegie and at one point she has us all sing together. So I'm not an anti-Judy Garland person at all. And I knew Liza really well when she was young we were both in the theater. But no, Stonewall had nothing to do with Judy Garland's death. Around the corner is a bar called Julius's, which is still there. And that's where the men that might have been mourning Judy's, uh, she had her funeral that day, might have been there drinking their tears away, but not the Stonewall. So I just want to get that out of the way. No, that's a myth, not true. Nothing wrong with Judy, but she had nothing to do with what happened that night. Trust me, no one was talking about Judy in front of the Stonewall or inside the Stonewall. Now, it's a very small place, If you were to put all the people that say they were in there dancing on the tables. (sighs) The reason I'm saying some of these things to you, Steve, is that I think the truth is much more interesting than the myth. What we were able to do as a community that had never made any noise, who had never stood up for themselves, was not allowed in any political organization unless we were closeted. What happened that night freed us to do all those things. Yes, people did things before Stonewall. And yes, if you're holding on to it, are entitled to that memory. And I think that it all built the kind of sensibility for what happened to Stonewall. Why does Stonewall get the attention? Because it was in New York City, the media capital of the world. New York City is organized. It's physically very different than L.A. or San Francisco. I don't have the words to tell you how the exuberance was in the air. The the lack of fear was in the air. You know, the sort of group crowd mentality. And my life is full of happenstance. People say, I don't believe you were there. Well, I was there. And why was I there? I can only say happenstance, you know.
4: This has been a conversation with Jim Ferrat. This is Steve Pride. Thanks
3: for listening.
1: To hear it told Everyone was at Stonewall It's widely known not
4: so was hope. Every G&L has new York tales tell. The oh, why
0: After the break, a classic tale of coming out from Peter Dell.
1: And a Gatino report from Dan Guerrero.
0: Dan Guerrero. 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 Dan, we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so stick around. We'll be right back.
2: Donuts fly at Cooper's Donuts, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The transgender community has fought back against police brutality as early as May of 1959. It all started at Cooper's Donuts on Main Street in Los Angeles. This coffeehouse-style establishment stayed open all night and was situated between two gay bars in a rough section of town. It attracted a mixed crowd of drag queens, male hustlers, many Latino or African-American, and their acquaintances. Police often patrolled the area, demanding identification and looking for IDs that didn't match their name or gender designation. Arrest often followed. On this night, they fought back, hurling donuts, coffee cups, and trash at the police, forcing them into their squad cars as those inside poured into the street, dancing around the trapped police. This would not be the last time they would fight back. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John Porter.
3: Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine out front and out loud since 1974. On KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 93.7 San Diego or streaming online at kpfk.org. I am RU. Here's the
4: time check. Here's
5: the time check. It's the time
6: check now. It's quarter two. Oh, I must get a little hand
0: put on that watch. Welcome back. I'm Abby Dees.
1: I'm Wenzel Jones, and you're listening to IMRU Radio.
0: It's been years since Peter Dell's stint at IMRU. Luckily, we'll always have his stories.
4: She sleeps so peacefully. It is good to see the lines of worry leave her face, even if it is only while she sleeps. She really is beautiful. I know that intellectually, but I will never feel it in that deep down place. I know it will never work between us. I love her so much. She loves me, but I am gay. I met Christine when I was 15 years old. She was 21. We worked together in a movie theater, and after working together for a year and a half, Chris decided that she would go out with me. I had come out to myself six months earlier. Yet, even with the knowledge that I wanted to have sex with men, I allowed myself to try going out with Chris. What was the harm in sleeping with a woman? Having sex with a woman, this is what adults did. This was normal. We are on the movie theater stage. The building is closed and no one is around. Just one horny 16 year old gay male and a 21 year old heterosexual female. She touches me, whispers to me, makes me feel so good, so attractive, so normal. I am swept away on a hormone tide, and before I know what has happened, I have passed that sacrosanct rite of manhood. I have lost my virginity to a woman. Sex with Chris wasn't about lust or getting off. Sex with Chris was synonymous with intimacy. Sex was a way to get close to her, to be bonded to her. It was an intimate moment that I could share with a person that I loved. And that person happened to be a woman. I am gay. What? I am gay. We are both crying. I knew it was too good to be true, she says. I knew you were too nice. God, why didn't I see it? Of course you're gay. We have been going out for six weeks. I find the courage to tell her on this October night. I don't know what this is going to do to our relationship. You're gay, but let me just tell you, Peter, I love you. both started a myth that night that we would sustain for the next two and a half years. The myth was that I could and would love Chris forever and the thoughts that I had towards men, I could keep those away because we loved each other. And God damn it, why can't I just be happy and normal with a girlfriend? Please, oh please, let me be anything. Let me be blind, let me be deaf, but please, Don't let me be gay.
1: Last week, civil rights activist and labor union leader Dolores Huerta had her name enshrined at the intersection of East First and Chicago streets in Boyle Heights.
0: In a classic Gaytino report with Dan Guerrero, she revealed that in the 60s, she also facilitated the intersection of the farm worker movement and the gay rights struggle.
5: Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report, voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my very special guest, an American hero, my personal hero, a woman on a lifelong journey as a community organizer and social justice activist, Dolores Huerta has been an iconic civil rights leader for more than 50 years and still going strong. Most know she co-founded with César Chávez the United Farm Workers Union. Some may not know Dolores has long been a champion for the LGBTQ community, a community that supported Dolores and César in the earliest and most dangerous days of the UFW. Welcome, Dolores. Thank you so much for being on the Gaytino Report.
6: Oh, I love it.
5: Did we ever think we'd see a day when we have a radio show called the Gaytino? (laughs)
6: Well, I'm sure that uh, on this station it's uh, definitely uh, possible.
5: It is Mm -hmm. possible. I'm very happy to be doing this show and to be putting the spotlight on the Latino LGBTQ community. Now, we've been friends for a long time, I'm very proud to say, and we've talked about many, many things, but it was only recently that we started to talk about the LGBTQ issue in our community, and that came about because of that story Luis Valdez told me about the People's Bar Do you remember the People's Bar? Oh, of course. The LGBT community was very much supportive of you and Cesar back when you first were starting the UFW. And in those most dangerous days, they would march right alongside you.
6: We actually had a special button designed for our support LGBT community. And it was the Farmworker Eagle with the pink triangle. And actually, when we were on the boycott in 1968, many of our staff members were involved in the big marches that they had in the Stonewall marches back there in New York City. And uh, then over the years, uh, we always participated in the marches, gay pride marches here in West Hollywood and also in San Francisco. And it was wonderful because it would be great to see all the farm workers coming down with their flags. and, And I remember one farm worker saying to me in Spanish, Ay, Señora Huerta, esta gente nos quiere mucho. In English, he said, Huerta, he said, these people really love us. And I said, yes, they do, and they're very supportive of us. And so the farm workers just marched with so much pride in the Gay Pride March, so it was just wonderful to see that.
5: But getting back to the People's Bar, I was so amazed by that story. According to Luis, it was a bar owned by a lesbian woman, mm-hmm. uh, I believe Mocha, mm-hmm. and uh, after the marches and rallies and all that, the campesinos and you and the Cesar would all go back and there'd be the gay community there hanging out at a lesbian bar. I think that's a movie scene. Well,
6: it, it's more than that. Uh, Mocha was actually a Caesar's and Helen, Chavez Caesar's wife, uh, their comadre, because she baptized Caesar's oldest son, Fernando Chavez. And we had, actually, many of the strikers, we had a large component of uh, gays that were part of the farm movement. Uh, many of them worked at the, the Georgia Ranch, which is one of the big companies that we were striking at that time. In fact, they were the object of one of our big boycotts that we had.
5: I know with the immigration issue, so I don't even know what to say. Mm-hmm. Such a hot button issue. Mm-hmm. And for LGBT undocumented mm-hmm. men and women, that's an additional challenge. I mean it's a whole other ball game for them yeah, when you're undocumented.
6: Yeah, and it's really bad because we have many of our LGBT community who have their partners or the people that they have married Uh, who are undocumented, and they have a a kind of a really, really big problem in terms of being able to fix their papers so that they can come over and join their spouses. So it is a very, very big issue, a very painful one.
5: Painful, yes, Mm -hmm. that's the right word. And also uh, in terms of health, because if they're undocumented, they're afraid to go get tested for AIDS, and it's a domino effect in so many areas for the undocumented gay man or woman?
6: Well, I think in terms of testing, uh, like we participate in that, one of my son-in-law's, Camilla's husband, he has, uh, uh, you know, been... Uh, but what we have done when we do the testing is we actually take it out to the street
2: this oh. is what we do in Kern
6: County. We just don't wait for people to come to us. And we have a very active program there every single year to talk about the testing and do a lot of publicity Your around foundation? it. Your foundation? Yes. And, and we partner with other organizations to make this happen. But we don't wait for people to come to us. We go out there and look for them. Mm-hmm.
5: Can we talk about Juanita?
6: Yes, we can. Uh-huh.
5: Well, I love Juanita. She's a pistol, that lady, is Oh, she, she sure
6: is. Mm-hmm.
5: Your daughter, Juanita Chavez? Mm-hmm. Did she come out to you early, or how did that all come about?
6: I think after she graduated from San Francisco State College, then she let everybody know that she had a partner. So she lived with her partner for a few years. Her partner eventually transitioned and became a man. Mm-hmm.
5: She's very active, and she calls herself an out-and-proud member of the LGBTQ community. She was a teacher for a good many right. years, mm-hmm. and she co-founded the first Gay-Straight Alliance at Mission High School, where she went. Was that in Bakersfield? Where no, was that was
6: that? in San Francisco, right there in the oh, Mission. On the Mission she, District. Yeah, she lived in San Francisco when she graduated from San Francisco State. Her first teaching job was at Mission High School. And she did more than that. Uh, she also created a clinic there, and provided counseling services for the LGBT youth that were there at Mission High School.
5: She's currently the Communications and Media Coordinator for the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Yes. uh This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to my very special guest, Dolores Huerta. It's like you're going to go on forever doing this. It's such a marvel to see, and how you embrace so many of these, I don't know, I hate to call them causes, but I don't know what else to call well, them, and how they intersect each other. Right.
6: Well, it's a human rights agenda, you know. Yes. It's about human rights. Yes, that's it's the a, basic, that's what, the bottom what it's line. it's about, and I was very fortunate. You know, I knew Harvey Milk. We campaigned for him when he ran for the Board of Supervisors. He was a very good friend of Caesar's and a good friend of Richard Chavez, Juanita's dad. So it's always been a very, very strong connection. People sometimes ask me, where did this evolve from? I said, well, I don't know. It's always been there. I can't ever remember a time when I remember going to Mexico when I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. And it was really interesting there because there were some gay waiters in this restaurant. And my stepfather was from Mexico City. And he said in Spanish, estos son los Luisitos. He said, those are, they call them Luis. And I said, what is that? What is that? He said, these are gay men. And he said, everybody has to protect them to make sure they're not harmed. And I thought that's such a beautiful sentiment. My stepfather was born in Mexico City, grew up in Mexico City. He was kind of from the middle class. And it's interesting And then we saw how that changed later on. I really don't know the history there. I guess somebody from Mexico could say that. It may have been when, and I don't know when Fox became president or wherever when they kind of reconnected with the Catholic Church again. So I don't know. But something happened there from the time I was 17. And, of course, later on we saw a lot of discrimination in Mexico. But it's interesting, too, that the Oaxacans, you know, they have a very different take on gender. There's a third gender. And the third gender are people that are very sacred, actually. And uh, they have a wonderful celebration here in Los Angeles. I think it's called Los Mochis. And uh, people dress up uh, like uh, in the Tijuana, which is, the, is part of the Tejuanas. Uh, these beautiful, beautiful costumes where they have the huge lace bonnets and these beautiful embroidered uh, costumes with these huge embroidered skirts. And uh, they have a beautiful celebration uh, here in Los Angeles. And they, uh, every year they elect a queen And it is a person from the third gender that is the queen. It's a beautiful celebration. I wasn't able to go this last year. Uh, but the year before last, and you had the um, Mexican consulate was there, and all of the local city officials were there. I think that there's a movie about this, and maybe we can have some of the folks that organize this beautiful Yes, event. I
5: would love li- it, it. I never knew event. about this. Yeah, well,
6: it, well, in Oaxaca, it happens every year. But now in Los Angeles, they've been doing it for a few years.
5: Well, it sounds like the Native Americans here in what is now the United States, because they also revered. they were called Two Spirits. Right. And they revered exactly. them, and it was like they were special, exactly. you know, because they understood the two worlds. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, in Mexico City, going back a little bit, and now of course uh, gay marriage has been legal there for a good many years and their gay pride is no longer the F, it's now Ciudad de México, right? Mm-hmm. Is huge. They have a huge gay pride uh, celebration there, so it has evolved there, which mm-hmm. is fascinating to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, <laughs> We're getting some external noises because we are at the Catalina Bar and Grill, where Dolores Huerta has just been honored by KPFK, and for good reason. You've spoken very highly of KPFK, how it was the only voice in the early days of the movement.
6: Yes, absolutely. And this is uh, such an incredible, incredible radio station. And what I love is when we think of the many years now that this has been celebrated, this organization. I remember when it was first started because I am, as you know, 87 years old now. So I was just lucky to be alive when so many of these great things were just beginning, uh, like the uh, radio station. And uh, knew some of the first pioneers that started the radio station. I was very lucky to know some of them, and uh, to know this, it's still here.
5: And, and you people, are too. And
6: yes, yeah, I'm <laughs> lucky to be here. And the, but the people are still supporting KPFG and KPFA.
5: You know who personifies the whole issue of undocumented people who are of the LGBT community is Jose Antonio Vargas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know about him. He was born in the Philippines, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until he was about 16 that he found out he was undocumented, Mm -hmm. and he's a gay man. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess he's got a book coming out, but he personifies that whole issue.
6: Yeah, and Jose has been, uh, as you know, very active all over the United States. He travels a lot, and... uh, He has an organization called Define America, and his uh, organization tends to try to educate people on issues of the gay and lesbian, transgender community, but also very, very active just in terms of the Dreamers.
5: Have you worked together? Have you yes, met? we
6: have. Yeah, Jose, uh, we, have, we have been working together. But in fact, this last year, he was very active on helping us out with the film also. But the film Dolores, it was produced by Carlos Santana. Your
5: documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the documentary. Your documentary was fantastic. Mm-hmm. The film, Rosario Dawson playing you, I don't think so. <laughs> but the documentary, I've seen it twice. It's incredible. <laughs> How did you feel about it?
6: I was really happy that uh, they found so much footage that I had never seen. And they touched on the issues, of course, of sexism, and discrimination against women, the farm workers being victorious over Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, and Ronald Reagan. I want to just say a word about Ronald Reagan. Maybe some of our listeners are going to say, well, Ronald Reagan brought us amnesty. Uh-uh, that didn't happen. He signed the law. But the ones who did the work on that amnesty bill was up, Ted Kennedy, Schumer, who is now in the Senate. He was in the head of the Judiciary Committee, Howard Berman, here in California, Peter Rodino. They were the, the main people. And myself, I'm going to include myself, because uh, one of the things that we're trying to do now is, make, is women get credit for the work that we do, right? And I worked on the Amnesty Bill for months in Washington, D.C. to make sure that it passed. You know? And So just remember, Reagan is not all that great. But uh, the film, I think, is really great because it also touches on the issues of police brutality. It touches on ethnic studies, which we know in Arizona. And you and I were marching there in Arizona when they were doing all of that discrimination against the undocumented people and also uh, taking ethnic studies out of the schools, out of the high schools. Uh, As you may know, the state Supreme Court has now ruled uh, that they have to teach ethnic studies. So they lost that law that they passed.
5: I did love that film so much, but I loved hearing from your children. Well, they're not children anymore, Mm -hmm. but they're still your children, your babies, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It was uh, Juanita spoke, and I think Ricky, Mm -hmm. and uh, it it humanized you because Mm -hmm. everyone knows you as the iconic figure that you are, Mm -hmm. but you're a lady with family, Mm -hmm. and it was beautiful to see that Mm -hmm. side. Mm
6: -hmm. And Camila, who's the executive director of my foundation, she's the one that does all the work while I'm running around the country, following the film around and doing speaking engagements.
5: (laughs) your energy just if i remember one time we were at some event and then i called you the next morning to i don't know what and you said oh i'm in cleveland and i'm going to speak in a minute i'm thinking cleveland we were in la at 11 o'clock last (laughs) night and you were
6: i don't know how you do
5: it i honestly don't
6: well we try to cover as much as we can because we want to get the message out there about the dreamers we want to get the message out about we want people to be sure and vote and go out and knock on doors and phone bank and get themselves elected we're urging people yes run for the school board, run for the city council. Uh, We've got to get progressive people to take over the power. And of course, uh, as we're talking about the issues of LGBT community, these are some of the things that we have to really work hard on, okay, so we can end the homophobia in our community and in our society. And I think we're on the way there. We're not there yet, but uh, we know we have to get everybody involved.
5: I mean, it's important to celebrate how far we've come because we have, we have. And yet, the road ahead is very long and very treacherous. Mm-hmm. And we are currently in a back step, as mm-hmm. we all know. So you know when that first terrible election night, my knee-jerk reaction was, oh, I'm going to lay low Let this thing blows over. I better not do Gaytino anymore, you know? And then when I came out of this shock a couple of days later, I thought, no, 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 no. This is a time not to retreat, but to really stand up and be louder than ever. And we all have to do that. We all have to do what you've been doing forever. You are literally a national treasure, and I treasure our friendship, and I thank you for being here today.
6: Well, thank you for having me, Dan, and I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing, because uh, you are also a long-distance runner and uh, carrying on the justice work uh, that your dad started uh, through his music and uh, you through your art. And thank you very much for uh, producing the play Gatino that I have seen twice and love it. And I urge everybody, if you haven't seen it, please, now it's time. And I understand that you're working on some other great projects.
5: Thank you. <laughs> this is Dan Guerrero with the Tuna Report, and I've been talking with a true American hero, Dolores Huerta. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud. <laughs>
1: Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our director of podcast distribution, Vash Bodie.
0: Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're interested in volunteering with IMRU to help make the magic happen, email volunteer at imruradio.org.
1: And a reminder, because we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org during any hiatus from the over-the-air schedule during fun drive.
0: Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts.
1: And next week in a very special What's Your Story, a writer from the new Netflix series Tales of the City who also wrote the iconic film 9 to 5, Patricia Resnick. Good Good night. night.